Our guest tonight needs no introduction. He's recently retired after a six-year stint as the site expert at Behind the Buck Pass, where he penned some 3,187 articles. In addition to that, he hosted virtually every episode of the One in Six podcast. Now, Adam is not from Milwaukee. He's not even from America, and yet he's become one of the leading voices in Buck's fandom with his love of the game of basketball, his wit, and yes, his intelligence. Never seeming, well, never seeming like some kind of poser or a carpetbagger, Adam came to understand all too well the kind of our, our gallows humor and our particular affliction as Bucks fans, which is why I always felt like the podcast was so well named to like to, to win in six, to win in six podcast, to win in six is to hope for that impossible dream to acknowledge the kind of anchor around our neck with irony, but but not ironic detachment with a bright eyed optimism uh, in the face of a bunch of nonsense. In addition to that, Adam is a master of movies and he has his own film pod, which is called Captured on Celluloid. Uh, Mr. McGee, how are you? I'm, I'm good. That was quite the introduction. I'm very, very grateful for that. Grateful for all your support over the years. Um, but yeah, I, 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 the more I think about it, I think part of the reason why I got books fans, books fans got me, is because, as you said, I'm not from Milwaukee, but I am from this little dot of an island in the Atlantic Ocean that often gets forgotten about, um, often gets grouped at the UK, which it's very much not. <laughs> and I guess the underdog kind of mentality and the ability to have to, you know, laugh at yourself, laugh at your own misfortune. There's a shared kind of, <laughs> you know, I'm I'm not from one of these California-esque places. Ah, okay. So is is I'm sure this is offensive and deeply offensive on many <laughs> levels. Let's say it. Let's say it anyway. Is is Ireland? Ireland is Ireland like um. The Milwaukee to England, Chicago? Uh, yeah, that could be put in mildly. There's a lot of stuff that we could wade into that I'm not going to wade into. Um, but yeah, I mean, we could put it like that. I mean, look, um, one of us uh, conquered the world, the other got conquered. I won't name names. And um, <laughs> I think that kind of explains the dynamic, right? There's... um. There's these series of YouTube videos. It's called like History Oversimplified that my kids have been watching where it's basically um, kind of cartoon stick figures explaining history. Just uh, but it's it's very um, interesting as far as to the land acquisition of this. And it, like they've done a million of them where it's like World War Two, but also just like the Falklands crisis or whatever. And it's just like, oh, they did this and these planes went here. And then this guy died, then blah, blah, blah. And um, I'm. I'm sure that would be my extent of understanding of kind of the uh, geopolitics of Europe, you know, at all. It's just, yeah, th look, they, I, I went to NPS. They didn't teach us anything in school, right? So <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Man. I don't know what to tell you. But uh, possibly sore subjects aside, um, 
How long have we been talking about Unbreakable? You see, you know that I'm like officially retired now that we're actually doing this because it's a long time. It's a long time. It was probably in the region of, I don't know, five years maybe that I was like, yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. I'll have to hold my hands up because it was, I have had now multiple podcasts that you were going to come on to talk about this when I finally got around to watching it and I never got around to watching it. And so I, I sent a message to our good mutual friend, Jordan Tresky yesterday. I was like, this is how out of the game I am now. I've just watched Unbreakable, and there's going to be a podcast about it tomorrow. So, it took some time. It took a lot of things had to happen, but we're here now. Yeah, no, this is um, that I'm I'm ecstatic about this. I, I really don't know at what point this became my shtick. Uh, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit, but yeah, it's a, for, for whatever, it's the principle of the thing. For I'm, whatever reason, I'm most excited for that, and even more so having watched it, and when we'll get into it. Like, I don't know how much I have to say about the movie past a certain point. We'll get into what I feel and etc. But the thing that I want to know is just what in that movie makes you tick. So I feel like we're really we're gonna get down to something really quite special here. This is this is the answer to years worth of questions is gonna be packed inside this episode. And perhaps like uh, some of Shyamalan's movies, maybe it'll leave you a little bit cold. But we'll see. We will see. Um, but so what we thought we'd do here, I, I'm actually kind of excited to test out this format again. Um, the, um, response to the tenant, uh, cast, I think also was, um, very much appreciated. Appreciate everyone who, uh, reached out and said they enjoyed that. We, we assigned each other a movie. I've been assigning Adam unbreakable for five years and, <laughs> um, and a couple of days ago or a week ago, he, ins- we, we came to, um, he came to assign me the Alfred Hitchcock film Vertigo. Now, the kind of all-encompassing disclaimer, I am somewhat of a movie fan. I am not a movie expert. Adam is a movie expert. And so what I wanted to do, a lot of people would kind of lean in to, uh, you know, try to educate themselves about the film they're assigned or watch some YouTube videos or look at Wikipedia or even... Uh, known the names of the actors and actresses in it. And I just didn't do all, I didn't do any of that. So you're going to get my kind of unfiltered thoughts on the Alfred Hitchcock film Vertigo. So let's talk about Vertigo first. Vertigo, a feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head. Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror as created by Alfred Hitchcock in the story that gives new meaning to the word suspense. I don't want to die. There's someone inside me. She says I must die. Scotty, don't let me go. A beautiful girl haunted by the desperate, unexplainable urge to destroy herself. A man possessed by the paralyzing vertigo that made him afraid of high places. Easy now. I know, I know. Ah, Where's the sedge? I look up, I look down. I look up, I look... What was the strange attraction that brought these two together in spite of the dark forces that tore them apart? The specter from the past 
that drew her to the ancient headstone in the mission graveyard. The compulsion that drove her relentlessly to the point of no return. The story of a love so powerful it broke down all barriers between past and present, between life and death, between the golden girl in the dark tower and the tawdry redhead that he tried to remake in her image. If I let you change me, will that do it? If I do what you tell me, will you love me? Yes. All right. All right, then I'll do it. They don't care any more about me. I don't think I've ever seen this before. Um, it, it it shows up in pop culture a lot. Yeah, but I, I see. I don't think I've seen Rear Window either. But I think I feel like Rear Window I knew from The Simpsons and and other you know because well maybe I don't even know Rear Window is the one where he's got a broken leg or whatever. That's right. Okay, and he's he he kind of witnesses a crime or thinks he thinks he witnesses a crime. You've seen uh, you've seen Simpsons episodes, I guarantee about Vertigo. I think I think it's referenced in maybe three different episodes. There's one where it's I can't remember the name of it now, but there's one where it really kind of hones in on it. Even on YouTube, I'm sure if after this, if you look up like Simpsons Vertigo, you'll find it. So I I think there's there's maybe a couple of bits that when you watch it, even if you hadn't seen him, I go, oh, that's familiar, just that idea. Particularly the dream sequence where Jimmy Stewart's head is really big and flashing on the screen. Yeah, yeah. So I have a lot, man, Um, the I have a lot of statements about the kind of craftsmanship. I, I found that kind of tricked out, uh, but, or, like, I, I was with it. I, I was digging whatever they were doing. There's a lot of, like, um, kind of, in my ignorance, I put them down as kind of Willy Wonka kind of scenes with uh, flashing lights on people's faces and um, almost seemed kind of like a kind of rotoscoped kind of intro. Uh, kind of, kind I'm, of credit I'm so glad. I only I thought of this when I went into it, but to talk about this with you is I'm actually really excited for it because uh, that's probably the greatest title sequence done by one of the greatest graphic designers ever, Saul Bass. He did a lot of work on Hitchcock's movies and his posters. So it only occurred to me when I started watching it. I was like, oh, this is actually, considering how much, and even when I've been on uh, on your podcast and on YouTube videos, and we've talked about jersey design before, like it's it kind of ties into something too. So yeah, one of the all-time, certainly the greatest kind of graphic designer ever to work in movies was heavily involved in this, did the title sequence, did the poster, and also that really kind of iconic sequence in the middle of the movie yeah no it's it's great it's it's great and it's kind of that um proto kind of so i thought i i thought it was this movie was either 52 53 or 54 it was in the first half of the 50s i believe it was released 58 um, no well that shows what i know so coming okay so coming into the 60s and it but it kind of had that kind of 50s going into 60s kind of mm-hmm. 
kind of flair. I, I appreciated uh, blanket spoilers for every movie that we're going to talk about now. We should mention we are going to spoil Vertigo. We're going to spoil Unbreakable. And at the back end of this, if we have enough time, we will spoil Tenet. So, uh, but but if you want to listen to this but don't want Tenet spoiled, we will not spoil Tenet right right now. Just just for everybody. Um, more than anything, this movie made me think that I really need to get a tie pin. Um, <laughs> Jimmy Stewart, I do not own tie pins. I have tie clips. Uh, but it, it really, um, in, in a way, since kind of the opening bit about the brassiere kind of thing, uh, it, it, it really does prop up the tie in kind of an attractive way. I was looking at it, Jimmy Stewart's kind of series of gold tie pins. I appreciate it uh, very much. So I'm going to try to summarize this movie. Um, I took a little bit more than the normal amount of notes. So I'm going to try to summarize this movie and then we can get into whatever bit about it. I, I liked it, though. I, I liked it very much. But I will say, so I watched, Adam, I watched the first half of it on the laptop in bed last night uh with the chicken sandwich and some tater tots and at a certain point fell asleep with my clothes on and woke up and watched the second half of it uh this more uh this this afternoon and then i watched the beginning again so i've seen just about all of it uh, most of it twice oh okay uh uh yeah no i I liked it quite a bit so we so vertigo starts uh after the credits with this kind of opening scene this kind of rooftop is a completely a san francisco movie um these cops are, are pursuing a, uh, a perp on, on rooftops. You get kind of the flash of the gun. They're running across and Jimmy Stewart can't quite make the jump. And um, long story short, the cop uh, falls. And yes, and also iconic from an iconography standpoint, the look of the way everybody falls in here. You're right, Adam. I don't know what I've seen that from, but I've seen that in pop culture like a million times. You know what I mean? Kind of almost like that cutout kind of spinning the way the way people yes, fall. Yes, yes. I mean, th- that, that comes from this. And even... There's a lot. There's a lot that I'll say, but I'll let you get through the plot because even the, the vertigo effect in it is something that's iconic. It's called the vertigo zoom. It was conceived for this movie. And it's a technique that, I mean, it's central in this film, but it's also, it became something like deeply associated with some of the most famous shots in Jaws, for example. So there's, okay, a, so that, there's a lot so, here that you'll have seen elsewhere, whether you realize it or not. Okay, that's, I was going to ask. So that, that is the Brody shot in Jaws. That is which, the Brody shot in Jaws. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. Okay. So is that, what, what, say that again. What do you call that? So this is, I, when I did my, undergraduate uh degree it wasn't in film specifically but my focus in it was in film it was kind of general communications i i wrote my my written dissertation on the vertigo zoom uh which which is this technique so basically it's if you got if you have a camera and you have it on a dolly so you're able to move it slide it back and forth how they do this technique it's the technique that when jimmy stewart's hanging from the roof all of a sudden you get this distorted warped view when he looks down. It's the same later in the movie when it's at the bell tower. It's basically, so while say the camera moves forward on the dolly, you're zooming out. So you're, you're moving the camera basically in opposite directions, once with actual motion on a track and the other with a zoom. And it just kind of warps the perception and gives mm-hmm. this incredible effect that it's really good for getting inside someone's head with like the Brody shot in Jaws where you can just kind of warp in and it's this really nice flashy technique without necessarily taking the audience out of it. It just kind yeah. of, it gives you a sense of unease and you're like, okay, we're really narrowing in on this person's perspective. But yeah, it was, you know, it was born with this movie. So it's, 
a dolly zoom or as it's generally referred to because of the movie, the vertigo zoom. And, and see, so, yeah, and I can't imagine, I mean, that becomes kind of the citizen, uh, citizen Kane kind of thing about like, I can't imagine seeing that technique for the first time. I mean, we, we probably, it's, it's just part of the language of film, mm-hmm. uh, you know, now, but yeah, I can't imagine this being the first movie. You can actually do this by uh, in, in a, in a shaky cam kind of way. If you, you know, take a camcorder into your car and, have someone else drive and if you do 60 you can kind of replicate bits of it by just you know shooting it out the windshield and then zooming out as you're driving forward you can kind of get like a similar effect but um yeah so that i I did notice that so um okay so the plot of vertigo uh stop me when i'm wrong i'm sure i got most of this wrong um we kind of cut to the officer falling down and we go to midge who is um Jimmy Stewart's kind of lady friend, uh, not quite girlfriend. She's mm-hmm. got like this this kind of elegant apartment, you know. Like I, I really like the sets. Um, she got this elegant apartment, it kind kind of sloppy, all, all kinds of color. And again, so I, sorry, I, I just got to ask this now. I, I didn't have a real feel for what in this movie was rear projection and what wasn't. There's a lot of kind of chase scenes that kind of come later. You could kind of tell, I think all the scenes where Jimmy Stewart is, is in the car that it seems to be rear projection, but there's also kind of scenes, um, kind of, there's a shipyard scene that, and I also couldn't differentiate uh, in my ignorance between like the matte painting ness of, of some shots versus, um, versus rear projection because it also seems later uh when there's a um spanish mission kind Mm -hmm. kind of see kind of scene that 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 looks like a a painting at at some point it's it's real i mean it's it's nearly all real sets i'd say you're 100 right on the driving scenes that would very much have been the norm at the time but like interiors sure would have been i think were shot it was paramount i think was the studio so they were shot in the paramount lot but exteriors were real exteriors in San Francisco. So for example, the shot down at the bay under the golden gate bridge, that's, that's a real, I think it's four. Great shot. Um, That's real. I mean, it looks, it looks so kind of painterly, the backdrop, you're like, it just looks Mm. so perfect. And there, there are quite a few instances. I just like, is there, are there many more scenic cities in the world than San Francisco? So that really does come across at times in the movie, but yeah, real locations. Um, the exteriors of his, of, uh, Jimmy Stewart's house, Scotty's house, real location. Um, all of the, the places that plot points take place, including the missionary, uh, which is south of the city. I believe that's a, that's a real location. That's still like that to this day, I believe. Mm. Oh, wow. I have to interrupt the podcast just for a second. You're about to hear an ice cream truck in the background of my neighborhood. What what kind of ice cream does this make you does this make the kids want to get ice cream? Like I understand um ice cream trucks got canceled recently and um was vaguely aware that Riza made a new ice cream truck sound which which is not this like I, I i thought this was adam's cell phone for like a full 30 seconds before i realized it was behind me anyway this is what the rizza ice cream truck sounds like anyway back to the pod a very interesting um says something about kind of the nature of man that when he in the next scene goes and visits his his buddy who um 
spoiler alert is kind of setting him up. He visits Gavin Elster and who laments the way San Francisco used to be. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet for us, like this is the way San Francisco, this is like the, the height of San Francisco. You know, I mean, take me there now. Can I just, can I just (laughs) go and live in the fifties in San Francisco right now instead of whatever we live in? (laughs) It looks great. No, it, this, it's a great looking movie. And also I, not just with kind of the light daytime scenes. The daytime scenes look great. There's kind of a a green car that's that's followed throughout, um, which is there's so there's nice kind. Of, they're not really chase uh, scenes so much. I mean, he's he's following mm-hmm. the kind of femme fatale, but also there are scenes in alleys. There's kind of there's a lot of dark scenes in kind of hotel lobbies and stuff. And the, the sense of kind of light and darkness. It's not just all kind of bright colors, although it's certainly that. Uh, so, so he has vertigo. We, some time has passed. He has vertigo. He's got a little bit of money. He doesn't need to be a cop right away. He's going to decide kind of what he's going to do. His college buddy looks him up. And then we go to this room. Uh, we go to this next scene in the shipyard with Gavin Elster. And this is a scene that I can only describe is let's show off the wood in every part of this room. <laughs> Like they move throughout the entire room. Like he's like, hey, we're at the desk. Let's sit at this chair. Let's go by this model. Let's sit at this other chair. Well, now I'm going to go into this whole other room. <laughs> this is showing off. So this is, I, I'm not going to do this all the way through because we've done it once. But uh, you actually, you mentioned Citizen Kane as in terms of when we talk about the Vertigo Zoom, you're like, imagine seeing this for the first time. I think that is a, a show off scene where they're like Citizen Kane. They're shooting in deep focus. So everything in the room is pretty much in focus. They have freedom to move around the room. And that really comes out just in how shots are staged throughout. It really kind of striking. I still find you when you watch it now compared to how movies are made now or how TV looks now, where everything is very cut heavy and you've got a lot of coverage. This is an example of a Mm -hmm. movie where like the camera is really free to roam. And because the camera is free to roam, the same likely applies for the actors. And yeah, you're right. That's a great example there's a lot of really nice wood in that room and it all gets its moment to shine uh, <laughs> yeah. because it's shot in defocus. It's just, it's almost like a, well, it is. I think it's like a play where it's just like, Oh, we're going to go sure. over here. And then at a certain point he kind of confronts him and he's like, Oh, you were, you always a dummy, this and that, just like in school. But then he's like, Oh, well, I'm sorry. Uh, and it just, they just moved to the end. And it's, it, it's, it, it's a really cool scene. And the only reason I could tell this is really kind of deep. I was like, is that a matte painting of the shipyard behind him? Well, there's a crane moving in the background. And I'm like, is there a crane in front of the matte painting? Or is it? Or are they really there? I bet that that's a, a studio set. So I would okay. guess. I'd guess. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Like, the, the vast majority of this movie, I know for sure, was shot on location. But something like that, that is an interior. Yeah, it's very possible. But then the other one of that I think about is... I don't think the view, which is incredible from Midge's apartments, doesn't look real. I, right. I could be wrong, but it, it looks real to me. And it's like, that's quite the, I hope someone in Midge's family still has that now because that's worth a lot of money. Um, it's a really, really nice place. Yeah, it reminds me, there there was a book that I read in high school. It's called Understanding Comics, and it was talking about kind of the different and it just reminded me of like there there was an example of kind of an orientation of a room where like that and you can just kind of tell it when you see it where it, there was like a um, standardization of shapes in a room. So like every handbag in the back is 
kind of lit and colored in the in the similar fashion and and when you see midge's midge's kind of loft whatever workspace apartment it's like every kind of sketch every bag on the wall there's like the brassieres just i really like and it's kind of like banana yellow on the walls too like i I really like her apartment visually um so we're five minutes into the movie (laughs) let me speed up a little bit Uh, This this is a really tough movie to do a synopsis for one of maybe the most difficult ever. So I don't envy you here. This is a tricky one. Dude, so you did this. You reviewed this, but I was at work. And so I, I was half listening, right? I mean, you know, I was listening. But That's you reviewed enough. this for, for for one of the podcasts, and I remembered. So check it out. I was sure. And once we got like a half hour into it, I kept waiting for him to make Midge into his new girlfriend because i thought that's what, was, uh, what the movie okay. was about I, I was like you know what he's gonna make her he's gonna make her look <laughs> just like the one who fell and i was waiting for it and it was like i didn't even remember anything but i like something snapped and i was like oh now i get it because she just falls out of the movie so anyway to summarize um so gavin elster says i think my wife is sometimes another woman and there's this woman, Carlotta Valdez, who my wife thinks she is. And she goes off into a trance and it's very creepy. But but Jimmy Stewart, I need you because I don't want this to get out. I need a friend to do this and you're not doing anything. Help me out. Um, And then we go to Ernie's, which is this beautiful red mm-hmm. wallpaper kind of place. And so there's a lot and lots of extras in a lot of these scenes, which is just kind of cool. And um, Jimmy Stewart sits at the bar and dude, seriously, like the second time I watched this, uh, if I had watched this a week ago, I might go into a, a whole thing about how this movie is all about the Milwaukee Bucks, like abandoning red and green. <laughs> it's, it's red and green everywhere. The movie is red and green everywhere. everywhere. There's red and green everywhere. And they go to a red room. She wears a green dress. And the entire time he's trying to get her to go back to the green later on, when a bunch of other stuff happens, she tries to be the new girlfriend. She puts on the purple dress. She puts on the purple dress. He doesn't want her to wear the purple dress. He wants her exactly the way that it was. So, but again, dude, if I'd have had this bounce around in my stupid brain for any longer, that's what this movie would have been about, but it's great. It's this great red wallpaper room. And he watches her. And then I, I think we can summarize. So he then follows her everywhere. He follows her to an, uh, a museum or some kind of art gallery or like an art museum kind of thing. He follows her and she's looking at this picture of this woman. And so we're led to understand she thinks that she, she thinks that she's this woman who died in the past, who killed herself in the past. We found out in a kind of a weird scene uh, where obviously pre-internet, pre-even great records like Midge takes him to just talk to a guy who I guess just knows everything. And, and so, but she, so she thinks she's another person. He thinks she's suicidal. And at a certain point, a bunch of other stuff happens. But at, as you mentioned, the gold, <laughs> the gold gate bridge shot, she dives into the water, right? She dives into the water. She tries to kill herself after throwing some flowers away. The flowers are the same flowers from this painting that she keeps looking at. There's this kind of curly cue thing with her hair that's also in the painting that she has a thing with the hair. Who did you think, like, this is just the way I look at stuff. I'm constantly the guy who every movie is like to my wife is like, well, who does she look like? Or who who, who is this person reminding of? Did, in, any thought on the actress of this movie? Um, Kim Novak? Who I did, Kim Novak. Who does Kim Novak look like? Because I couldn't quite put my finger on it. 
I I don't know. I mean, I've this is probably the movie I've seen more than any other. So I can't see her as anyone other than Kim Novak. But you could come out mm-hmm. with someone who I'd be like, do you mean someone kind of more recent that there's a resemblance to? No, it's no one person, and that's why I couldn't get it. I was like, you know, there's a little bit of Pink. There's a little bit of Anna Nicole Smith. There's a little bit of... There's a few archetypes, but I just... It was just... She's really interesting but, because, like... I mean, you, you've you seen some Hitchcock films. You haven't seen all of them, but I mean, I think anyone who just kind of knows anything about Hitchcock knows he was obsessed with blondes, and the Hitchcock blonde was mm-hmm. something in his movies that was very powerful. Um, and kind of just... It's a trope. It got to the stage where it was a trope where, you know, the back half of this movie where a guy desperately just wants to turn this woman's hair blonde becomes really, really interesting mm. because this this was Hitchcock. Like, this yeah. this movie maybe tapped into Hitchcock in a way that none other did. But she's just kind of... I don't know, Kim Novak has a, has a very striking face and her her frame, I think, is slightly different there's a lot of kind of like, say, Grace Kelly in Rear Window or mm-hmm. Tippy Hedren and the birds. They tend to be more slight, the kind of stereotypical Hitchcock blonde. And there is something different about her. And it works really, really well. Uh, Vera Miles is another kind of regular Hitchcock blonde. And that's originally who he had cast for this film before finding out then that she was pregnant. So they had to find someone else. So it wasn't even originally supposed to be Kim Novak. I think Kim Novak has this really kind of unique quality, even among the Hitchcock blondes. But I'd find yes. it—I'd find it difficult to kind of pin someone that she's like, because to me, it's like she's Kim Novak. It's so no. deeply embedded yeah. in my mind at this point. No, I thought she was great. I, I thought she was great. Um, yeah, man. So then a bunch of stuff happens. Uh, th- also. I, I, was this the first shot of the kind of surf hitting the rocks? So, so that's the other thing. Like Jimmy Stewart is like creeping on her, like the entire movie. It is somebody else's wife. Like he immediately is, he's just taken with her. Right. Um, uh, and he finally kisses her after he saves us by the golden gate bridge. And then the surf hits the rocks. That's a pebble beach, I believe. Really? Yeah. Okay. That's, that's where that was show as far as I know. Uh, Unfortunately, I, my brain associates that with like the little mermaid or something like, but I was just like, what is that? Is it, I was like, is this the first time? Cause it hits like the, um, the, the score, the score, uh, uh, by the guy who does, um, Herman. Herman, 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 right. Bernard Herman. Yeah. It, it, it just swells and he kisses her and the, the water, the surf hits the rocks and it's just like, okay. So, so, so Adam, then when that happens, then when that happens, she gets wet. She gets wet. She goes into the room. I know this is gone. Go on. Jimmy Stewart is wearing a green sweater vest. He is wearing a green sweater vest. He says, why don't you get dressed and come sit by the fire? And then she puts on his red robe. Yeah, he leaves, <laughs> he leaves the red robe for her. I, I really, I did not foresee this becoming a Bucks Uniform podcast, but here we are. And, and and he can't wait and he wants to relive that moment for the rest of his life like we jump to the end and he's still like why don't you sit by the fire yeah, on these two pillows okay so really the thing that he desperately wanted the thing he was most particular about was the gray suit so does this mean the answer for the books is actually a gray jersey because i don't think this is something you're gonna buy into i think this is where your books were to go theory falls down unfortunately no that's where it comes up because the gray suit represents the bradley center Ah, okay. You've really 
<laughs> no, I, I pulled that out of my butt. I don't know, man. I don't know. You found a way to make it work. I, it's the rubble of the cursed Bradley Center. Yeah, okay. No, no, dude. It's yeah. <laughs> the Bradley Center was cursed, but but her life was cursed, right? And so was his. So that I don't know. I don't look. I don't know. Vertigo. You you might have seen it, right? You might have seen it. Um. So I, what I want to say here is, um, like the plot of this movie is completely ridiculous, and like that's just this is widely uh, widely viewed as the greatest movie of all time, and I would personally say it's the greatest movie of all time. And even with that, like, there is no one alive who has seen Vertigo who doesn't say the plot is completely ridiculous, which is actually part of the reason why it's the greatest movie of all time. It's because if it gets to trying to boil it down and explain what's happening and go beat by beat, it is so ridiculous. It's so dumb. It just doesn't work, which kind of makes it one of the ultimate examples of, oh, well, this is the power of cinema. This is why you make a movie. And particularly because, like, uh, you've talked about, like, the set design already. The costumes are amazing. You've got the greatest composer of all time, and to my mind, and Bernard Herrmann, and I would say his greatest yeah. score. Yeah, I agree. Like, you've got incredible actors. You've got all of these ingredients that bring it together and have something that is just so ridiculous become something that, like, I, I, I really might have watched this movie 20 or 30 times, and I watched it again for this, and it just completely consumes me um it's uh that to me is the part of why like just the trying to okay here's what the movie is about and it kind of descends into nonsense and you do have to go and then some stuff happens and some stuff happens that's actually one of the strengths of the movie (laughs) itself when you sit down and you watch the movie because you're like wow this works and this has a hold on me that you know just in terms of what the story is it really shouldn't because it's completely ridiculous yeah no no totally well the first the first half hour I was like, what did, what did you have me watch? You know, mm-hmm. like, like I, I was, I was immediately taken with the rooftop scene, but then it was just like, oh, okay. You know, it's, it lulls like, so it's, hard after that. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Cause you rarely come into a movie quite as like intensely as this movie starts, which is a classic Hitchcock thing. And it's a great tool for any movie, you know, start your movie with something happening. Uh, because then you can get people to sit through the 20 minutes that are just kind of set up an exposition. Otherwise, but yeah, it's a real kind of you you sit down in your seat and you're like, oh my god, okay. And then yeah. you're you're waiting for it to happen, and that slow burn is kind of increasingly powerful as it goes on, I think. Particularly as like it's a movie about time, it's a movie about memory in so many ways, and it's a movie about romance, and you need to feel the build and you need to feel okay the way this you know, there's a lot of that you can't just rush because it doesn't it doesn't work from relating to the characters and their their positions but i don't know this is again i'm this is if not my favorite movie it's my second favorite movie and it's probably my favorite movie so i'm not much like when we move on to the other movie uh and roles will be reversed i'm not the most objective when it comes to talking about vertigo because i i do just i'm kind of wowed by all of its various elements every time i watch it dude where was um i forgot i didn't even I didn't look it up, obviously. Where was Hitchcock in the movie? Is he's in all his movies, right? I didn't I didn't catch him. He is in just before the meeting with Gavin. So when they have the ex- exterior shot of the docks, he's the first person to walk past. He walks by with like his lunch pail. 
Um, oh, I missed it. Okay, it's it's just it it's not one of his most knowing. He's not in it for too long. It is just he walks across the front of the screen just before it. So it's very early in the movie. Okay, so um, what Midge drives around in a green. So what? So basically, there's there's kind of a first crescendo of the movie, which is Jimmy Stewart is head over heels over Kim Novak, and he he. Also, kind of the interesting about movies from from a long time ago is there's kind of these needless kind of deals where she comes to the house and he's like, no, no, it's great, just come back at noon, you know. And so he, she's like, okay, I'll come back at noon, you know. And, and so he comes back at noon. He says, hey, there's this mission out here. You have these memories, but we're gonna look at this mission because you probably just were there and forgot about it or whatever. This is what it is. So these these memories that you have from you being alive a hundred years ago, we're gonna solve all this. And so they go there. She doesn't buy it. Um, they He pledges his love to her. And then she runs up to the top of the bell tower and falls down. And then Jimmy Jimmy Stewart can't overcome his vertigo to run up. And then after that, we get kind of this very odd kind like an, of... An inquest, like a trial. Yeah. Inquest. I, I wasn't sure because I don't... Yeah, like a hearing before, but it seems like they just settled everything. Like literally, like the um, jurors don't go anywhere. They just say, "No, nah, we don't need to deliberate, or or we don't need to like sequester ourselves, or whatever." We're just like, "Yeah, here." That, and they talk about the judge or whatever. Like I don't, I think it's like the terminology all adds up to a trial, and I don't know. Maybe there's something. Maybe this is something that happened in the fifties. Doesn't happen now. Maybe this is something that could still happen under these very bizarre and particular circumstances in the U.S. today. Uh, but maybe the closest thing that we could have here would be an inquest of some sort. But the guy went so hard at Scotty, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. that Scotty becomes catatonic and is in like a mental health facility to try and like. I I just it's it's another it's a weird lull in the movie, and I I do think it's effective for a few things. It's effective for uh, particularly Midge and Scotty's relationship. And Midge is really interesting in the way she kind of ducks in and out. As you mentioned, she does just kind of at some point completely disappear. Dude, uh, when does she draw? I skipped it. When does she draw that picture of herself? Is that before this or after this? Um, That is, it's before this. It's before, like she, she didn't, she didn't decide to do it after uh, Madeline had jumped off yeah. the tower. She wasn't like, oh, remember that person? Yeah, you're, you're, you're <laughs> again. So let me show you something I've got. Uh, I, that's one. That's a really. I think it's a really good visual gag, but it's also just some really great. I really like Jimmy Stewart's acting in that scene. Like it's a really, yeah, it's a really good portrait as well with Barbara Belgetti's head on uh, on Carlotta Valdez's body. Yeah, she, you know, she's very talented, Mitch. This is the one thing. Whether it's her right. yeah. design or it's her art i mean she's got a lot going for her it it, it reminded because i've seen like two movies from the 50s or 60s but it kind of reminded me of kind of a manchurian candidate kind of queen of hearts or queen of diamonds whichever one it was kind of thing where this just like like it i it was it was kind of a shocking scene it's like what did she draw and it's like oh it's 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 her as this person and he's just like like you said, no, 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 Midge, it's too far, you know, or whatever. And he goes away. That's and, one of the uh, first really crushing moments where, like, my heart just goes, oof. Because that's like, oh, he's not just like, he's completely fallen. He's fallen beyond anything. 
Uh, he can't. He's not holding it together anymore. He's that infatuated with this woman. Mm-hmm. So apparently he's then in some kind of convalescent home for a while and Midge visits him. And I think later in the text somewhere, she's, he's like, I haven't felt good in about a year. So maybe he was there for a year because Midge talks to the doctor. But at any rate, sometimes she jumps, she jumps to her death. We think, um, <laughs> like you said, a bunch of other stuff happens. And then, so then it kind of his descent into madness, right? So, um, then he starts seeing the car and he sees the green car around town, but this, you know, lady is like, no, no, I bought the car from these nice people. Isn't it a sad story? And he just kind of goes away, but he's seeing her, he's seeing her everywhere around town. Right. And, and I think these are also kind of some of the things that I, I'm aware of from other movies or this, just kind of idea of this kind of, in a way, it's almost kind of like that Sammy Jenkins moment, uh, um, where it's like this cutscene where he's back at the restaurant, and then he, it, it starts out obviously mm-hmm. it starts out as the actress. Yeah, Kim you know, but, is, ab- is absolutely the actress, and then it cuts, and we get the different actress. Right, but it's but it's 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 really well staged, and oh, it just yeah. kind of keeps happening. I, I, I was, and th- and this is the point when I'm really in. Now I'm really in on, on this descent to madness kind of track. Um, and I wasn't prepared for what happened next. I'm I'm interested. Uh, I'm not gonna, but I want us to come back to the idea that this is a descent to madness, right? Because on some level, and I think I mentioned this some other time in this podcast, on some level, you can, you know, what movie is that? I mean, you can say that he was that none of this happened. Or at what point you can do the thing where it's like, well, at what yeah, point was this all in his mind? Sure, there's a theory for that, but I don't even buy that. But I mean, there's yeah. a there's another. There is an also there's also the fact that he's like the descent to madness is also him figuring it out and actually coming to clarity and actually seeing the situation for what it was and like to me this movie and I think the thing the more I see it and the more I think about it I I love it more and more because you see how both characters fell so in love with the other one and yet they both managed to break the other beyond repair. So yeah. she does it to him first as part of the grand scheme she's in on. But then he does it to her later when, you know, they found each other. They can have this. They know. And yet he's got to push it further and further to the point of, you know, the woman he's loved is there. He has her. She's right in front of him. And it's still, it's not what he wants. He wants something else. He wants something that isn't her. And uh, we'll, we'll get to the ending and we can talk about that and the way kind of theories have kind of built around that and what exactly happens and why. But I I think, like, he is a terrible person towards the back half of this movie. But she's talking to him early on. Like, they they both just, they're both completely in love with each other, and they both break each other's hearts as bad as they could be broken. What was interesting to me is I did not figure out until she wrote the letter I was like, okay, this is just kind of the lookalike thing because maybe in the language of the movie, we're supposed to understand that now this brunette um, just looks like mm-hmm. Kim Novak. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, they're going to have the same actress, but it becomes this kind of th- like maybe we're supposed to understand that she looks like a dead ringer, but not just, just, just like her. And so I didn't figure out, obviously, I didn't figure out the twist. Uh, but let me, I'll say this in the form of a question. At any point, does Jimmy Stewart at any point, actually meet gavin elster's actual wife no so at no point they because i think they said well she's always out in the country or something so it was always kim novak so 
the setup is there from the start. So one, they're old. I'm, I'm, I. They're old college friends. You know, Scotty doesn't have much of any memory of of Gavin Elson, which is which is interesting because Midge went to college with him and she doesn't remember him either. So oh. I'm. I don't know if I'm reading that wrong to think that this is just in a completely an opportunistic man who saw this news story of a cop who suffers from vertigo and like as some sort of incredible evil mastermind went, Oh, this is the perfect way <laughs> to kill my wife. I, yeah. I don't know if they actually really were like, there's, there's enough there that I have question marks over that, but no. So the first meeting it's laid out clearly. I'll, we'll go to Ernie's. You'll be there. You'll see her. You'll know who you're to follow. So no, he he at no point, and I say he, we at no point see Gavin Elster's real wife, other than you know in the form of a dummy that's likely being thrown off the top of a bell tower. Yeah, right. Yeah, a sack of potatoes. Um, so I'm sure I got the timeline wrong, but when I was unbelievably in on this movie she's wearing the purple dress and they go back to the room and she's there's a couple of times she's bathed in green light the green light yeah, the green from neon the, from the sign outside yes is is illuminating her it's it's intention like of course it's intentional but it's uh how would you say it's underlined you know it's underlined she steps into the green light in that way it's almost kind of like uh the gatsby thing and and she's bathed in this green light and and all the other things that you mentioned, which was heartbreaking, that Jimmy Stewart then can't accept, uh, and he wants to his sense of nostalgia or his sense of trying to uh, hold on to his sanity or whatever we would say causes him he, he's going to make her exactly like the other woman. He does, you know, and so our, our Madeline, our Madeline character, kind of has some kind of kind of more common kind of street accent that she's doing for mm-hmm. a while, or perhaps, and perhaps that's kind of, but you know, again, because I'm thinking, well, this is just someone else. And uh, she's a working girl, well, not a quote unquote working girl. She works in the city and, and, and basically Jimmy Stewart just runs up on her and is like, I I just want to talk. I just want to talk to you. I want to get to know you and all this. And, and they begin a relationship. They go to the same restaurants. He, in a heartbreaking scene, like slavishly, anally has to find the exact same gray suit. Um, And, and like, and so it's also kind of just an interesting little bit of insight where they have other people parade the gray suits in front of her. Like Kim Novak doesn't, doesn't try on the gray suits. And Scotty's I'm like, what got kind money? Of- Scotty's got money. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It's like the most madman thing in the world. I'm like, is that, is that how it was done? I mean, I think we've all seen a million scenes in movies about, you know, you go to the tailor and you step up on the thing and you know, like the, the kind of high class tailor where the, where the guy's conducting some bit of important business while also being tailored for a suit. But I was like, wow, you know, they, a staff of like five women is is waiting on them to find a gray dress from last season so that uh, Kim Novak, uh, Madeline, can look exactly like who he believes to be this dead woman. And, and of course, then the suit isn't enough. And then she's got, and like you said, the, all the Hitchcock things there, uh, then she's got to be a blonde and it's got to be the right form of blonde. And then when she comes into the room, the curly Q thing in the back isn't quite right. So she has to do that. And as she has to do that, then she steps into the green. Like, go ahead. This is Hitchcock with his leading ladies, and this is what he was famous for. Like, Edith Head, who worked with him on nearly all of his films, she was the costume designer here, and there are anecdotes about, like, originally when they're getting the grey suit and they're picking out, not on screen, off screen, and she'd have, like, a belt here, or she'd have, 
like a brooch here and Hitchcock's like no no that's not so this is this is the kind of the really interesting kind of uh metatextual level to this is like Jimmy Stewart is full on behaving like Hitchcock which is maybe why Hitchcock pulls it off so well that it's deeply disturbing and yet yeah. it, it kind of it, it just it walks this incredibly fine line and I the thing that I think about a lot with this movie is is that just Jimmy Stewart? Is there no other actor alive at that time? Maybe since? Maybe Tom Hanks. Um, I, I was just about to ask that. Like, it, it, the only kind of person that you can have play that role. Like, there are literally, you could count, if I was to think and really stretch, maybe I could find some more, but you're going to have them on one hand, all-time actors, who could play that role without just completely losing the audience because you're like, this guy's completely psychotic. I've no sympathy for them. Like he's he's just about to be a serial killer. Like mm-hmm. it's it's really incredible the way that Jimmy Stewart. I don't know if that is just the trust he has in an, an audience, but then I don't know. I think people who haven't necessarily seen a ton of Jimmy Stewart films can probably still come into that and see it. He just has a kind of inherent warmth and kind of goodness that wins everyone over, including like. Madeline, including then Judy when she's Judy, even when he shows mm-hmm. up. But like, just think of that. I mean, that's that's something that I always watch too. That first scene and the way that's played when he shows up, and it's like, if you've done what she's done and you've been a part of that, imagine what it's like to have the guy show up on your doorstep. And it's yeah, <laughs> like it's the worst nightmare. And yet she lets him in, and yet like she loves him enough to do that. But there's a really kind of that scene, like Jimmy Stewart is playing Hitchcock. But he's doing it in a way that I think only he could keep palatable because everyone's just like, oh, Jimmy Stewart, what a nice guy. I, I really think the movie could have ended right before the brooch. I was so heartbroken by the seven minute stretch of him trying to make her over that I thought that's what the movie was about. I didn't mm-hmm. really feel like I needed the double ending of. So, Adam, why don't you please explain the ending of Vertigo? Um. So which part of, is it the. I find the ending of Vertigo to be very simple, but there is a there is a lot of kind of there seems to be a lot of confusion about it. Uh, when you say that, do you think of the very literal ending, which is quite sudden and brief? You're talking top of the bell tower. Yeah, I, are you he, he, discuss, the he discusses whole, the brooch, or, or, or is it just really that he even brings it that far to begin with? To me, at any point. It could the movie could have stopped with the point of the movie not being that he discovered the deception because the deception is kind of revealed in that letter that she writes and then rips up. Right. So, and, so your point would be if the deception was just left aside and he kind of he gets his wish without knowing it anyway. Yeah, and she's unhappy and he's unhappy, or he's just not gonna be happy and or or perhaps it's a portrait of just this kind of Yeah, honestly of, it's obsessiveness. It's, it's a good ending and it would be a I think it would be too happy of an ending for Hitchcock, first of all. Like, Hitchcock mm. cut this film himself. After he did some previews, he and his editor, they cut the scene with the letter. They didn't want the reveal to be that explicit, to be that early in the film in the form of the letter. And the studio intervened and said, no, no, the letter stays in. The letter stays in. And I think, one, that's kind of instructive in its own right to just make things make things clear of to what Hitchcock's intent was and what he viewed this story as. 
And I don't think he wanted to leave any semblance of hope would be would be the key <laughs> thing that I'd go to with that. And ultimately, I mean, it is it's a story about um, the dangers of obsession, uh, the pitfalls of romance. Like there's there's a whole lot here that's really interesting in a really kind of deep psychological way. Like we we could talk about certain elements of this and branch off for hours. It's that kind of movie. Yeah. But what happens to me? Scotty sees the brooch, and that's all the pieces click into place. It's like clouds part. Um, however, however many ways his vision may have been blurred by you know what he wanted to see and what he wants to happen, he now realizes, okay, I've been deceived. And I think some pride probably kicks in as a detective. Like he was had, he was used as a pawn, and from there he kind of flips a switch and it's okay. We're going, we're going somewhere. We're going out of town. We'll eat out of town. They get in the car. They go back to the mission and he forces her through step by step through what is, I guess the most painful moments of his life forces to relive them because she did that to him. So I guess part of it is pride. He got fooled. Part of it is wanting to really lay out. Look, this is what you did to me. This is what, you know, what we had, what we could have had, how I felt, and this is what we ended up with. So, the other part is, I mean, it's laid out in the second scene of the movie. So, after the rooftop scene, Midge is having a conversation with Scotty. Scotty's about to leave her apartment, and she makes a throwaway comment about having spoken to her doctor and, uh, the acrophobia, his vertigo can't be overcome. You know, it's it can't be overcome unless maybe there's a traumatic event that kind of shocks him out of it. So on that front, there's obviously a part of this too, which is he wants to conquer it. He wants to retrace his steps. This time, he wants to prove he can do it. And he wants to conquer his fears in the process. He does that. He leads her... Uh, under duress by force up the Mm -hmm. bell tower steps they get to the top of the steps they get to the top of the bell tower he confronts her and then we get this figure um this kind of first of all the shape appears which i i'll be honest it uh, flat out scared me the first time i saw this movie because it's so yeah it's just so sudden and you're like what uh which is why a lot of people react to the ending the way they do (laughs) Um, but it's a nun who has heard people shouting, because they were shouting, has come up to see what's going on. But she appears as just a shape. There are different interpretations of what happens from here. So Judy, Kim Novak's character, falls to her death once this nun appears. To me, what I always view it as is because we just see her as a shadow when she first appears. And when Kim Novak screams and falls, that... Basically, it's she thinks she sees a ghost. Like she's going back to the site mm. where she helped someone to, if not commit there and then to get away with a murder, and she thinks she sees a ghost and she gets startled and she slips and falls. Kim Novak's own reading of this, not the, not something that was necessarily discussed with screenwriters with Hitchcock. Hitchcock was not the kind of person who would talk actors through this stuff. But how she read it and how she played this was that at that point, Judy knows Scotty can't love her for her. He loves a person who never existed. 
he loves a person who she can't be because they were never real to begin with and she can't take that pain because she loves him so much and she jumps off so from that point of view i mean it's it's up to however you want to see it or what actually happens. Now, the one kind of the last addendum I'll add to this is they did shoot an extra two minutes for an ending after that, which is one of the worst things you could ever see. It's, okay. it's so bad. It's on YouTube. It's on. Uh, I actually I watched it after. It's like a special feature on when Universal did a restoration a few years ago. They put it as a special feature on like the DVDs and Blu-rays. Basically, for a lot of countries in Europe at the time, the film had to kind of have some note of uh, moral, ethical redemption. There had to be some evidence that Gavin Elster hadn't gotten away with this. So, in some countries at that time, it then, from the bell tower, it cut to Midge's apartment, where on the radio, someone is talking about this woman jumping and dying. (laughs) There's then a weird, like, 30-second story about college students. Scotty comes in, they speak no words to each other, and they just kind of linger in the apartment for 30 seconds, and it ends. It's one of the strangest things you'll ever see. Um, But it had to be shot to get the film released. See, that's funny because you jarred something um, when you were talking about the kind of courtroom scene. And the courtroom scene, I couldn't remember if that's the end of Psycho or just kind of endemic to yeah, movies it's, of that. It's a terrible, a terrible ending in Psycho. It's, like an, ex- I'm going to come explain away. it, right? Yes, which which Vertigo, ultimately, he does the complete opposite, which it's, it's interesting. Like, Vertigo wasn't the best received movie in a contemporary sense. Like, it, it was not, it didn't come out, as is the case for everything. Uh, it didn't necessarily come out and people are like, well, that's it. You know, the movies have peaked. This is the greatest movie ever. It's an all-time classic. It was much more mixed than that. And although, like, Hitchcock worked with screenwriters, so it was not necessarily him who had his hands on this all the time, like, I don't think it's a coincidence that two years later, Psycho ends with the complete opposite of this ending, which is we're, we're going to get a guy to come on screen. We'll tell the audience he's a doctor. So that they'll be like, oh, he's an expert. He's going to tell us different times, the 60s. I don't know if that would work today. Uh, but he's a doctor. He's going to tell us. And he literally just explains everything. It's a really bad ending to one of the greatest films mm-hmm. ever. So whether that was a reaction to the reception to Psycho or to Vertigo, I don't know. I think it's certainly possible and it would seem like quite a coincidence otherwise. Well, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. I thought it was very good. Um I'm sure in the next couple of weeks, if if I think about it, there'll probably be more that I could kind of parse out of it. But yeah, it, it, there there's just something so interesting, kind of about this. I the, the 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 last little bit about Jimmy Stewart. I guess you could say he's been quote unquote nuts the whole time or half of the movie. But the the, the heartbreaking bit of because the point is that he wants to make he wants to make Madeline. Like, he has to be the one to do it. Like, she has that gray suit in her closet. Like, she intentionally didn't bring the gray suit sure, out for yeah. that reason. She's made her own life. She's Maybe this was always the person that she was, but either way. Um, so, him trying to reverse engineer a memory of, of some other dude's wife, who not only was some other dude's wife, but was associated with the job that he was doing. And, and he just has to recreate it. Uh, because presumably, you know, they were going to run away together. It's It's... 
it's tragic and it, and it says something I can't put my finger on quite what, but, uh, but thank you very much for vertigo. Cause I would have never seen vertigo. I, I've probably seen bits of it elsewhere. And like, and you know, it's, it's the, the bits of it that have saturated through pop culture were definitely out there, but I, I very much enjoyed, uh, putting it on a laptop and, and, and really, you know, having a quiet room and really watching it. Cause I, I so thanks i thought it was good no i'm glad to introduce anyone to it i would encourage people even who have seen it rewatch it and at some point in time you might catch it on tv rewatch it it's a movie that particularly because there's so much going on there's so many twists and turns like it has a lot to give on repeat viewings and you can uncover new things and just also kind of just fall for different elements of it like that's the one thing that i will always stress about vertigo is i just it's it's not just like oh this is hitchcock's greatest film or well, this is like countless masters at what they do at the peak of their powers. It's it's really quite special in that way. And that's, that's something that I kind of, I always respond to in a movie. Like, I, I think you're very much this way as well, where like score is so central. It's as central as anything you see on yes. the screen. And to get the right score for a movie and to get a composer who really understands the tone. Like, I mean, there, there was no one better than Bernard Herrmann at that. But it's when you get that and you get the great cinematography um, from Robert Burks and you have some of Hitchcock's greatest direction and you have incredible performances from Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak. And there is like the gray costume design, the great set design, like that all comes together and you're like, okay, this is, this is something really special. So I think for that alone, it's worth watching because you get a lot of movies where you're like, that's an incredible performance or that's, it's very rare to get so many things right all at once. A really bonkers kind of dream sequence somewhere in the middle too, um, which, uh, like I said, seemed kind of part Willy Wonka, part kind of the well, pink elephants kind of thing in Dumble. Now that you've said Willy Wonka, Willy Wonka, 100% that scene is is a ripoff of Vertigo. Oh, so it's, you think it's referencing it? Oh, also? 100%, like, 100%. Yeah, I was just like... That is referenced everywhere. I had never thought of that. Uh, It's actually, it's a really... I love that scene in Willy Wonka. Even as a child, it, like, terrified me. Um, It's pretty disturbing. Uh, Gene Wilder really goes for it and does a great job. But that 100% that is, like, it's it's so iconic that there's there's no way that wasn't the case. But I'd never really thought about it before. But definitely, that's, that's where that comes from. That's definitely a conversation they had, which was like, oh this would be a great place to do like they do in Vertigo. When, when he's sitting at the bar to both times, but definitely the first time, because once we understand it and once we, when I watched it again, in the beginning this morning, then it's like, okay, so he's, um, Elster is parading her in front of, she kind of stops in front of the bar and she's kind of framed. And there's like, I think a red light, but whatever yeah. color light, like she's, framed. It's, there's it's, a red, it's like there's a, a red hue on her face and then she turns and it goes, I mean, like again, there's so much you could get into the lighting and everything. There's there's a film I actually haven't seen. There's like an experimental film that came out last year, I want to say, um, called The Green Fog. Obviously, in reference to that green neon fog when she emerges from the bathroom. But like, there are a lot of scenes that are intentionally foggy in this movie. It's in San Francisco, and they're playing with that idea, and they're playing with the idea of kind of the fog of memory. The graveyard scene is another where there's quite a kind of there's a foggy effect it's really softly lit um just generally so when the red comes in or when the green comes in it's really impactful Mm -hmm. they're really kind of intentional choices that you notice like the green neon is incredible um it's kind of it's hard to yes like as as two scenes and we will we'll move off it now because we've gone for a long time 
Um, I think her entrance scene at Ernie's, because Ernie's looks so incredible as well, and her in that green dress, to me, that's... It's my favourite character entrance of all time, but it's without doubt one of the best. Herman's score during that as well is incredible. And then when she emerges from the bathroom and you do have the fog and you have the green neon, just completely incredible. Um, that's kind of Hitchcock at his best, just knowing how to pick those moments for his characters. So we'll stop there for part one. Keep an eye out sometime next week for part two in which Adam and I talk about Unbreakable, the 2000 film starring Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, as well as a little bit of Tenet and the State of Movies. So we'll catch you then.